Hi everyone, today is November 21st, 2013. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Lena Ting. She's an associate professor at the Wallace H. Coulter Department of Biomedical Engineering um, at Emory University in Georgia Tech. Hi, Lena. Hello. Hi. Uh, her lab studies the biomechanics and neuromuscular control of posture and locomotion, as well as musculoskeletal modeling and dynamic simulation of movement. Around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi, Charlie. Hi. And we've got Todd Troyer. Hello. Hi, Todd. So I'm, I'm just going to go broad like I always do at the very beginning. Um, so whenever we're talking about motor control in any way, uh, there's always this fundamental problem of taking a, a task level command, like resisting a fall or pointing to an object and translating it into sort of the high dimensional anatomical details of muscles and joints. Mm -hmm. um, can you walk us through the engineering level understanding of this problem and expand out to how we can get from um, biomechanical models to understand uh, to understanding neural control mechanisms. There's sort of like a lot in there. Okay, that's a that's a tough question. I think um, even in robotics, it's a difficult um, problem in terms of specifying something that's not at the specific joint level. So traditionally, if you want to control a robot, uh, you say move the elbow this much and move the wrist this much, and we know that in order to do the task, even in an engineering context we have some higher level goals of uh, reaching a particular point and not breaking something uh, or a lot of other things that really don't have to do with the specific anatomy of how I'm actually uh, reaching that. Um, similarly in our brains, we know that we have representations of those types of uh, tasks um, that we might want to perform. And Thinking about it from an engineering perspective, uh, we are use or have talked to a lot of people who use what's called optimal control theory to achieve those tasks in which you say, what are all the different combinations of ways that I can do achieve this goal and then choose it based on some principle of minimizing energy or making a smooth trajectory or things like that. And while it can often produce movements and quote-unquote decisions that look really biological. The sort of mathematical underpinnings of it don't really tell us how that happens in your nervous system. So what was the second part of the question? So, so how do we get from, um, from, from these biomechanical models to understanding the neural mechanism? So basically your right, approach is right, what I'm asking right. for. So, so the optimal control approach is really interesting in telling you what, what things are relatively better or worse based on uh, some some overall metric. But ultimately, you have to figure out how it's done in neurons, how it's done in your body, and to kind of understand what the problem is that's posed. Why is it difficult uh, to do these things? And my perspective was always as a mechanical engineer, so I want to start with mechanics. I want to start with what the body does. And there are some things that your body will do uh, just based on Newtonian mechanics. So people have built these passive walking devices where they don't have any muscles and they walk down a slope and they look kind of like the legs of a human and they do a thing that's sort of like walking. And um, so people have argued that you really don't need a nervous system for... <laughs> for walking, <laughs> um, and that really the mechanics is the hard problem. But these things, they're not very stable. They're 
but they do reveal that there are some things that we don't really have control over and other things that we do have control over. And I think it's important for us to distinguish uh, the things that the nervous system can actually produce in your body and things that your body's going to sort of have a tendency to do um, on its own. And one of the things is these things fall over really easily, right? So they don't have any feedback or, or stability. Um, and the other thing is that they, they can only walk. They can't do anything else. And one of the things that we're really good at is using our bodies in lots of different ways. So I think being able to, this idea of reconfigurability is really important and understanding what the mechanics of the body are and what it requires to do walking versus running, say. We know that walking's sort of like this pendular mechanics, um, whereas running's like bouncing like a spring. And so we have these very high-level ideas about what they are, but it's the same legs that are doing this. So when we think about muscle synergies and muscle coordination, then... Um, we have to coordinate our muscles to either act sort of like this accordion thing or act when we're running versus uh, more of a stiff leg kind of approach um, when you're walking. And that's kind of how I think about the problem that your nervous system faces. How do you make uh, a multi-articulated body act like a very simple system, like a spring or a pendulum, through controlling muscles in a particular way? So people lose that function, then they sort of discoordination. If you look at somebody who, different gait disorders, people with cerebral palsy or other spinal cord injury, then they lose that ability to reconfigure their bodies in lots of different sort of purposeful, purposeful ways. So how do you, uh, I was just thinking when you're describing that, it seems like a lot of, uh, a lot of the task is uh, like either the optimal control, you have to decide what to optimize, or even some tie in a task kind of thing, you kind of pick your tasks mm -hmm. and you kind of grab them out of air and some kind of um, intuitively motivated thing. This seems reasonable that they would, you need to do this or walking versus running. Is there any, I mean, but a lot of it has to, it seems like a lot of the problem is deciding what, what really is the task. I mean, what is the range of tasks and how to think about that problem space in any kind of systematic way, is there? I mean, is there any way to, to think about those things, or is it more use? Is it too large to not just think about grabbing an intuitive thing and see what this tells you, or this is a good a kind of an artist kind of choice of this is a good approach or that is a good approach kind of. Yeah. So, people who do optimal control usually study very simplified tasks so that they have something that they can compare to. So, like. From my lab before, you do something with just a biomechanical constraint, like maximum height jumping was done by Felix Zajac, just to say, well, can we even predict um, sort of counter-movement jump versus jumping without counter-movement to say, okay, that's the way that you should do it. You should go down before you go up. Um, and that's just purely biomechanical. Now, most of us, when we jump, we're not trying to jump as high as we can. And so there are lots of other factors that would affect how you do it. And so the optimal control there doesn't necessarily um, explain that, and it doesn't necessarily explain why um, why if I get trained, I could jump higher, right? So I'm not really hitting an optimum, and that's one of the things you have to be careful of. That It describes a process and a way of weighting things, but it doesn't mean that our movements are optimal in that, in that sense, depending on sort of the cost function or the... 
the variables that we impose as being important. And so looking at where your optimal control doesn't predict is really important, I think, even more so than looking at what it does predict and learning about what kind of constraints there might be on our ability to just do whatever movement pattern that we want. I don't, I don't think that it's helpful in, in actually learning about what the learning process might be. So for, there's, a, so there's sort of the broadest extreme is just the brain knows about every muscle and what every muscle can do and programs every muscle. And so if you were to make a list of all the different ways of doing something, it would be an enormously huge list. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the optimal controller has to hunt through this gigantic list of possible ways to do it to find the best one. And maybe just has somewhat cut off. And when it gets good enough, I stop. I don't have to hunt through that whole list. But the list is really huge. And the, yeah. second, the, the second thing I think I hear people say sometimes is that well, the list isn't really that big because you can't you know, rub your stomach and tap your head at the same time, and so that, that can, maybe you can. Some people can. So, so, so that one just can be removed from the list. And so the list is actually much shorter because of these synergies of things that have to happen together. And, and in that case, it, uh, it ought to just, it, it sounds to the naive person like me as though, well, let's just do that. Let's just make the list of the things that you can do at the same time, <laughs> the same way the optimal controller has to make the list. I mean, we think the brain can do that like this, you know, immediately. Whenever I have to make a movement, then shouldn't we be able to enumerate all the possibilities, too, that that controller has to look through? And can we do that? Do we know that? I don't think so. Um, so I once made this sort of heretical statement in our, in our research group about, I don't think the brain knows anything about muscles. <laughs> so the brain has inputs and the brain has outputs and that's why you can do brain machine interfaces it doesn't really care what the inputs and outputs are although we've through evolution have structures that deal with deal with them so well, of course those yeah. are not muscles sure so well, it's, it's, not, maybe not explicitly about uh -huh. muscles it knows about what happens when I activate this muscle that I might get expect some sensory input or my leg will move or something like that does it know that there's actually an entity called a muscle, uh, this muscle versus that muscle, the, the motor pools are intermingled, and so it's not clear that it has any distinction, so it's much less discrete than what we might see so what does it on the output. If it's not muscles, I mean, this is, I, I know that this is kind of treading down an old, well-worn path <laughs> <laughs> that didn't necessarily ever lead anywhere. But right. if it's not muscles, then... Uh, you know, what is the dimension set that the controller has having to look through? Right. Or is it a set right. of synergies? And if it is, could we enumerate those? Uh, um, even for a, potentially, know, but you have, to, you have to also account for our ability to learn new tasks, right? So how would you do that? So there's a thought that you could just go through every pattern. I don't know that that's feasible. We know that uh, so if you have 200-something muscles... Even if you turn them on and off, that's a combinatorial problem that's hard, right? You get, you know, n factorial choices, and, and we're not necessarily doing all that. At the other extreme, people say we have these muscle synergies and, and movements are sort of reduced dimension, and they're simple. And on the face of it, it does seem like a contradiction, and there are certain people in the field where, where they're saying, yeah, it is 
It's simple. Um, but that doesn't really make sense because uh, if, it's, if it's sort of globally simple, uh, it doesn't make sense that we can only do a few things with our bodies. We, we observe that we do lots of different things. So, you know, the idea I have is that for any given movement that I could break it down into a certain set of subtasks and I could learn how to do them. So if I need to extend my leg or flex it or, or whatever during walking, that those could be somehow encoded. And there's also an aspect of learning where one person might do it a little bit differently than the other. We all have to pick up our legs in, in a cyclic motion in order to walk, but it doesn't have to be exactly the same. And that's one of the problems with optimal control. There's lots of solutions and you have to pick one of them. So we, we, one of my uh, students coined the term sloptimal. We think we're sloptimal where once you uh, are at a level where you, you can tolerate the error or energy expenditure, then there is no other motivation to get better. But now if I'm going to train to do some other task, so some kind of sports or dance type of thing, then it becomes a lot more important that maybe I'm more accurate with how I'm stepping and moving. And so you can now uh, potentially modify the or grow the number of coordination patterns that you're going to dedicate um, to that task. But ultimately, you have to remember that there, there are an infinite ways, number of ways that we could coordinate our muscles, and only a few of them are actually going to be functional and, and meaningful. Um, the other thing that I've been inspired by is this idea of sparse coding. So the fact that um, when you do something, whether you're looking at sensory inputs, it comes from the sensory world. When I'm looking at a scene and I have all of my uh, rods and cones are activated, uh, it doesn't activate my entire visual cortex. It activates very precise ones that have to do with features in the environment. So you have a few neurons representing... Um, something important about a complex set of inputs. And I would think about the muscle synergies as sort of the opposite of that. If I have uh, a motor intention, uh, and then I have to sort of fan that out to lots of different muscles that would actually implement that So you've called this the inverse tension. binding problem. Is that right? Yes, yeah, so I've called it the motor binding problem mm -hmm. of like, in order to, you know, uh, lift up my leg, there's a number of muscles at different joints that I have to coordinate in a very specific way. Once I've learned that, I don't really care about the details in the middle. I know that if I hit this neuron, then my leg goes up, right? So then I, I don't really have to worry about the specifics of, of what's happening, and I could potentially regulate it with feedback control of you're going too fast, too slow, or, uh, and, and then modify various elements of that, um, potentially with training. And so the idea is that the number of ways we could coordinate our bodies is quite large um, and but in any specific movement we would only want to use a few of those subtasks and it, you therefore would use a few neurons in sort of the planning stages and the stages of constructing the movement um, to do it and so you get a relatively sparse code meaning that I don't know where it is either in your motor cortex premotor cortex that not everything is active at once and that different sections of your brain would be responsible different types of movements and these are sort of like 
basis functions that move movements would be constructed out of. Exactly. And then each one of these maybe is, it sounds like you're even implying, I'm, maybe I'm jumping ahead or thinking, <laughs> overthinking it, but um, that, that, that is, you have some room in your brain for some in synergies, and they're like slots that could be filled with with the synergy that was completely learned. And mm -hmm. so instead of muscle synergies be reflected in that, absolutely in the wiring of what this motor cortex, what motor neurons this motor cortex cell goes to or something, mm -hmm. it could be more abstract than that. And so, uh, well, until I've used up my number of slots, I could learn a new synergy. And if I want to learn a new one after that, I'd have to forget an old one. Yeah, potentially. So there's an interesting study done... I don't know, five years ago with Gintner and Klassen, where they, they used TMS uh, to stimulate the hand region of the brain and then looked at sort of the kinematic shapes of how people's hands went into. So they tried to categorize a library of sort of hand primitives of how they would move, and they would use that to reach for a glass or something. And then they looked at professional musicians and said showed that they have different hand postures that they go to and that those hand postures are also ones that they use when doing sort of ordinary tasks like reaching for a glass so it's as if they had a certain number of muscle synergies and uh for for grasping let's say and that they were modified to be better at their you know playing their musical instrument and that um that modified the ones they're using for these everyday tasks right so it's not like they did separate ones for playing the piano they modified their handles and that changed fundamentally how they're going to reach for the glass now it probably didn't change their performance in reaching for the glass but and they reached for it with good form yeah exactly so you can tell people when they're walking whether they were a football player or a ballet dancer and so i think that training actually does affect um the way that we coordinate our bodies in everyday life would, would suggest that there's some constant, you know, some resource limitation in how many different patterns we could use. And if you look at, um, you know, representations in, in the cortex of people who are musicians or uh, someone following amputation, then it does follow the sort of rules of, you know, you can expand certain areas to represent your hand, which basically means you're probably taking away from something else i don't i don't know i'd love to i was just thinking about trying to test this in a computational way but so it seems like in, in along those lines it seems like one of the kind of underlying assumptions in the language or the conceptual things about these about synergies is they're you know they build up over time and, and make these kind of core movements and then you have to maybe elaborate things especially if you're learning something new um and so there's a, it seems like a question. So one question I, I have, whether it's reasonable to think about, uh, make a distinction between, say, more feed-forward, even forward modeling control that is more synergy-based, and things that, that aren't covered by this low-dimensional space of things that you have to do would be more feedback-dependent uh, in terms of sensory feedback to do new things that you have to do that you have to actually look at, say, your hand to configure it in a way that you've never done before or you don't do very often, or so forth. And then if you then practice that a lot, uh, 
then they may become either altering or new, creating a new synergy for that. But whether there's any task that you could do or you could do fast enough to, then that would predict there's a correlation on the, on the necessity for feedback control versus the, the time course of the development of a new synergy would kind of match or mirror the time course of the necessity for more feedback control or kind of timing or accuracy or something like that. Whether there's a correlation between all of those ideas that they go together. I, I, I don't know if that's reasonable or it gives you a, a... So, again, if you look at musicians when they're learning something, they have a lot more cortical activity than when something is very practiced. We don't know what happens. <laughs> but so that's what I'm saying. It's so yeah. you measure the... Exactly. Somehow two independent measures, measure the amount of cortical activity or something like that, and then some get some other way of assessing about what the underlying synergies are, the dimensionality right. of the space, right. and see them kind of co, co-changing in some kind of arbitrary training task or something over time. Yeah, so we have an observation in our data that when we do, um, when we measure people's muscle synergies, when they're doing an automatic postural response, it's brainstem-mediated response that you don't have voluntary control over that we see different numbers of patterns in different individuals and then they represent different sort of strategies for movement so in in a study we had young college students coming in anywhere from four to seven muscle synergies and don't know why they're different we do know that some of them were on the georgia taekwondo team (laughs) and uh, we haven't formally tested this, although we're sort of getting towards that, where this automatic postural response is may be modified based on some training, uh, some intentional training on the part of somebody who's doing a particular sport, right? And so when it does get really automated, then it should show up uh, because we do a perturbation response that's a subcortical loop. Can you back up and just, just talk a little bit about this center of mass kinematics stuff? Because this is what you're talking about here. We haven't talked about the task. So, so. Yeah, so we have people uh, standing on a, a motorized platform, and then the platform just all of a sudden moves in in a slip, sort of like the rug is being pulled out from under you, and we can change the direction. And then we look at muscle activity across multiple muscles in the leg, and the uh in the trunk and so the number of coordination patterns we pull out is different and so some of the people and i can't tell you if they were on the taekwondo team or not (laughs) uh would have this knee (coughs) knee bending strategy and so because it's the automatic postural response it's not an intentional sort of thing that they can they can respond to intentionally uh in the amount of time that we see 100 milliseconds so that's something that's limited by their musculoskeletal, uh, you know, the mechanics of it, the degrees of freedom within the... I mean, is that, what, what delimits that? So, well, most people will do what we call a hip strategy or an ankle strategy. Most people want to stay upright, and so they'll sort of sway their bodies around their ankles. These and are then, completely unconscious, though, right? Yeah, these are unconscious. They're not conscious responses, at least initially, we, later, we can actually modify them voluntarily. But the, the first 100 milliseconds, um, you know, you have some muscle activity that's based on um, what direction I'm falling, largely. So you can't 
so over, this was done by Nashner in the in the 70s to show that if I look at a particular joint angle, it doesn't predict the activity very well. But if I look at the overall direction that the body's falling, then um, that seems to be what determines the which muscles are activated at that at that very first instant. So the idea is that in in 100 milliseconds, you would have um, gathered sensory information uh, and made a decision as to interpreted it in terms of what direction you're falling and then activated the appropriate muscles that would specifically counteract that direction of falling. So do you see the same variability in cats? Isn't there a sort of more parsimonious strategy that cats have to sort of handle perturbations? I can't say so. Our cat experiments are really different because the cats are trained. Oh, and that makes a difference. So yeah. they do this every day for you know a year. So they're like experts at doing this task. They also have fewer sort of degrees of freedom that they can change. So because they're not upright, uh, they don't have as many different mechanical strategies that they can use to maintain their balance. Whereas when we're upright, then we can actually uh, bend our knees or sway the hips or ankles sort of more independently. But the principles of that are, are sort of more or less the same. And, and actually Jane McPherson and Don Dunbar actually did this experiment uh, many years ago in the 80s where they had cats standing on two legs while they did these perturbations. And they had humans on fours, yeah. all fours doing the perturbations to demonstrate that so the latencies are the same, and then the organization of which muscles really had to do with whether you're in a bipedal stance or a quadrupedal stance. So the, the sensory motor kind of processing was uh, not changed essentially, but it was modified according to the biomechanical situation uh, that the subject was in. <laughs> so, <laughs> so do you have any? Are there any differences between? Uh, the like the the static posture. I mean, if you get someone that like pays attention to their mother and stands up straight with their shoulders back and stuff, do you get different responses than if you have some sloucher like me? Uh, <laughs> I, is, there, is there anything that in terms of different strategies? I don't know if different people have different strategies that are like distinguished or you know we try to normalize that in our <laughs> experiments where we have to we make them look at you know look at a picture on the wall and we haven't studied sort of subtleties in actual the postural configuration that people take in terms of slouching or not slouching. Although in Parkinson's disease, there's actually some ideas that um, the stooped posture uh, negatively affects postural control and also that the preferred uh, stance width is very narrow compared to what somebody else would choose. So... Uh, and so why, you know, why do they take a narrow stance, even though they have postural instability, it seems like they should be more stable if they're standing with a wider stance. And it turns out when they go to a wider stance, they, their activity is not, not, uh, it's too high, essentially. So they're too stiff. And we also know that they're really not very good at changing their muscle activity in response to the biomechanical context. And so if they're too stiff and they can't change, then they probably want to stay at a narrow stance um, because it's easier to initiate gait there and because they're less stiff. Um, we did a study on amputees, and 
we were looking at how much their center of mass moves when we give them these perturbations and this idea of stability margin, of how close to being unstable they are. And we're surprised to find not that much difference, uh, except in certain directions where you know, they're loading the prosthetic. This is transtibial um, amputees. And then we looked at the data and we realized that all the amputees took a wider stance than what we might have. So we didn't control for it. And so the interesting thing is that they're making up for this deficit by uh, adopting a different posture that then functionally makes them, at least from these measures that we took, look more, more quote-unquote normal. So right now we've, now we've controlled for that. Because uh, <laughs> I was thinking about that also in terms of yeah. the athletes may have different postures than the non-athletes right like the default posture may be more have less have less tension in your knees for someone that does something like that we had some tai chi uh masters come in and they um our teachers come in and they like to crouch their posture a little bit more we, we ran one of the studies we actually had people be in a crouched posture and compared it across different postures so we had people stand in wide narrow single limb stance and a crouched posture and what we found is that the muscle synergies that you use across all those different postures are um, fairly conserved and so if, if in this particular person I see this muscle synergy in, in you know a narrow stance I'm probably going to see it again in a single limb stance or a crouched stance and so we were able to identify uh, patterns that were specific to each subject which is why th that sort of lends the idea of why um, I think the training is important in shaping each individual's uh, pattern, uh, pattern and complexity of their response. Can you go ahead? I was, well, I'm gonna, if you let me, I'm going to change the subject a little bit <laughs> sure. uh, to the sensory side uh -huh. because we've been talking all about the motor side, but right. um, a lot of your work is actually about. Uh, the sensory signals that are being used to calculate the change in the center of gravity. Say, although, although it's unclear to me whether there ever needs to be an explicit calculation of the center of gravity, because in your models, the sensory signals are just transformed into motor signals uh, well, without really an explicit center of gravity calculation that I could see. We, we assume a perfect knowledge of the center of mass so we don't know uh, where it comes from or how it comes about so you know you can look at if if the sensory system is impaired that you have impaired information about it and that should be reflected in the motor output but as in terms of like integrating vestibular information and proprioceptive information and visual information I'm, I personally don't do that work although there's um, so Bob Paterka who helped build my model he does that and has some clever ways of altering the sensory input and making sensory conflict right so you want to do sensory conflict you really want to test uh, how how you get an estimate of the center of mass and so you can do really interesting things um, by independently changing sort of the visual visual optic flow related to movement versus proprioceptive versus uh, vestibular 
information, and then and then you can actually say something about how does how how do we estimate you know center I definitely of mass. experience that in the in the Star Tour uh, ride at uh, Disneyland, right, where you're sitting in a chair and they make you feel like you're taking off Inertia, and flying through the space, yeah. right? And uh, so I was like I I just took a little weight on a string and held it out in front of me while we we're going. <laughs> you, know, you feel yourself accelerate, but you can see there's nothing happening. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so all of those things are conspiring to give us this uh, sensation. And then, so so that I think that's kind of a an ancient view, Descartes' view, sort of, that uh, all the sensory stuff all comes together to some central place. The central place makes a unified model of the world and then from there, some motor command is issued, and that, and it, it's uh, it sounds good. It's intuitively great. It sounds right to me about how my brain works. But it seems if the brain works like that, um, then we we haven't done very much at at that step. You know, the step where we take the sensory, all of that sensory stuff together and figure out where is the representation of my center of mass in the brain. Or, yeah. What does that look like? How does it get implemented? And then how does it control movement? Right. So I don't. I would doubt that there is really one place. So there have been some people arguing that through um, sort of a heterogenic feedback pathway within the spinal cord, you can integrate information from lots of different um, lots of different afferents and sort of get an estimate of some global estimate. So like Dick Popoli has measured uh, signals from the dorsospinal cerebellar tract saying that you, if you process it in the right way, you can get an estimate of limb length and limb angle. Um, and I think Doug Weber has done some dorsal ganglion recordings also showing that if you look at it on mass, that you can tell something about the limbs beyond what the specific joints are doing. So there, there is an argument about whether how peripheral or how distal that information is, but also I think we have to remember that there are lots of parallel pathways, processing pathways. So the thing that I um, use sensory information for in the spinal cord may be very different than the processing that happens in the brainstem at the same time versus the cortex. And actually, I'm really interested in this question of whether our perception of what's happening has anything to do with these automatic responses because they could be very different if they're if you take the same flow you have collaterals going everywhere from your you know your afferents one afferent it goes to proprio-spinal you know this brainstem up to thalamus and so there's a lot of divergence in where the information goes and so I would imagine there's a lot of different types of processing at different levels depending on what you need so in the spinal cord, a lot of it, we think about these monosynaptic reflexes being just joint-based, but they're fast. And so you, you want to stiffen yourself and stabilize yourself until you get the sort of the next computation from your brainstem that's saying, oh, I'm falling in this direction. And then at a cortical level, you can say, hey, I, I don't want to bring myself up to vertical. I want to change my strategy. And so all of those may be operating on a slightly different sort of parameters. Of so that late discharge that you see in the muscle that people have called long loop uh, mm -hmm. discharge or something. And some folks have said that it goes to the cortex. Mm -hmm. Some folks say it doesn't. But that signal 
has embedded in it that calculation of the center of mass, yeah. doesn't it? And so wherever it goes, it collected all that information and got back down to the spinal, maybe it never even, it had to leave the spinal cord because it includes visual and, uh, and vestibular information. In that's it. right, that's right. And so it, uh, it may or may not have to go to the cortex, I guess, uh, what's the status of that? I mean, at one time, everybody acted like that was a transcortical reflex and that used the motor neurons in M1. And, uh, but we might be back to that. So Steve Scott and Andrew Przinsky had a paper on arm long latency reflexes. And they also you know, have these tasks where uh, you're reaching for something and there's an obstacle and then you have a perturbation type of thing. And all of that information about the environment is sort of incorporated in that long latency um, response. So people have generally thought about them as reflexes. And so I don't necessarily like calling them reflexes because that gives the wrong impression about sort of sophistication of information that's required. So you can have information about knowledge of the environment and task and have it modulate the, uh, the longer latency but not the shorter latency response. So there, there's evidence that there is some transcortical uh, component to it, but I don't know how that differs from a more voluntary uh, component or whether it's that um, sort of knowledge or descending drive uh, sculpts the sort of sensitivity of a brainstem circuit. I, I don't know. But, but all of that, I mean... I was just thinking a minute ago that just calculating the center of mass is a, a big, complicated, difficult thing that basically is the, at the essence of what the brain does. But it happened. It's. I mean, you're in your field. It's called a reflex. <laughs> Even yeah. It's not a reflex, probably, yeah. but it happens really, really fast. And and so is it's certainly not the most difficult thing that our brains know how to do, but it's fundamentally similar to all the things we think of as the difficult things that our brains have to do. Take a whole bunch of sensory stuff from a zillion different mm -hmm. sensors, mm -hmm. combine it into some abstract idea that mm -hmm. implies a mm -hmm. movement that we have to make, and then program that movement to actually occur. All of that stuff happens in, how fast is it? It's like... 100 milliseconds, and that means that central, the central computation is probably only about 50 milliseconds right. because you have transmission that's probably taking... 30 to 50 milliseconds, but I, I, I agree that I think that the thing that we're studying is a very fundamental problem in neuroscience in terms of taking a bunch of in inputs that could be ambiguous on their own, uh, that could be variable, making an interpretation and then making a decision. It's just that um, we sort of think about it as being more defined because we're constrained by the biomechanics of the situation. So the choices that the range of choices we have may not look as different as like when you're speaking different languages, for instance, but fundamentally it's the same problem. It's just that when you make an error in a motor system, there are much larger consequences than if you make some other decision, uh, especially in balance control, right? Because you fall down uh, versus even if you're reaching or if I have to repeat myself twice, then that's probably the least expensive kind of motor mistake that uh, that I that I could make. But I guess some people would argue with me that it that it's not the same problem. But I I think that there is pretty amazing decision making 
type of behaviors that happen even in the spinal cord and certainly in the brainstem. So it's certainly a common framework that you can use to answer that question in terms of sparse coding and the sensory thing and then mu muscle synergies on the way out. So you have this reduced, you've reduced representation. So you have this complicated sensory uh, uh, stimulus uh, and has lots of different factors, but you reduce it in dimensionality. So you have a bunch of core important factors that you extract from things. And then you have to then map it on to presumably a few uh, core important parameters in the muscle side. So you can imagine a abbreviated thing where there's just one step. You have a sensory representation or a motor synergy representation. You could even imagine that it's the same step on the same population. So your synergies would be immediately mapped onto, like the neurons that are giving you your muscle synergies, which come from the way that those reduced uh, dimensions are mapped out onto. That's what a synergy would be more like a reflex. Then that would be like a reflex, but then you can imagine a whole add more and more stages where each stage is doing some kind of dimensionality, reduction, extraction uh, in between, and you're kind of in between decision stage. Doesn't ever have to you know, arise at one place of calculating the center of mass and what to do with it. It's a whole stage of things from some sensory set of, you know, hierarchical set of mm -hmm. reduced mm -hmm. dimensionality kinds of things that are important for multiple things. And then more and more flexible behavior, they go through a, a hierarchy of synergies right. to excite synergies to excite synergies down the way down. Yeah. Synergies all the way down. Yeah. <laughs> well, the other is people ask me often, where, where are these synergies? And I think that, um, I think they're everywhere. Um, you should have some in the spinal cord, you should have some brainstem, and you should have some in, in cortex. And uh, depending on where that activity is controlled, so when we think of locomotion, we know there's pattern generators in the spinal cord, and so we know there's the ability to pattern muscles in, in various useful ways in the spinal cord. And I can't play the piano with my toes, and so that's going to be um, in the cortex. But it seems parsimonious to me that you would have similar multi-muscle coordination mechanisms at all levels of the neural hierarchy and uh, there's this you know we have representations of our bodies at all of those levels and what's different is the degree of complexity and the degree of flexibility we have in coordinating the body um, from neurons at those various levels. So the most flexible would be in our cortex, but you, you would be in trouble if you had to regulate your balance control or walking with your cortex, because then you really couldn't chew gum and walk at the same time. And, and there are people who can't do that when they have a deficit um, in, in their walking and they're doing this cognitive compensation. Uh, and then when, when they're having to attend to the environment, then they fall down. Right, but normally we don't want that to happen. You know, all the students now they can text and walk to class, and it's fine. So they run empty. Fall into fountains. Right, <laughs> that's right. So it's real. It's actually really important that you have those synergies in the lower part, so we can, you know, use our cortex for things that we actually want to have to attend to, and all of the like, like navigation. Uh, <laughs> Or communication, right. <laughs> where they choose communication over navigation. That's <laughs> maybe a poor choice. <laughs> this has been really fun. Thank you for joining us, Lena Tang. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. All right, thank Long you. One. Who are you at science?